Father, we do praise the name of Jesus today. He is our hope. He is our salvation. Thank you that we have been able to hear the word sung, hear the word prayed, hear the word spoken, and now, Lord, uh, we have the opportunity to open your word and hear the word proclaimed. I pray that it would not just be uh, the words of a man, certainly it is that, but uh, Lord, that your word in some way, whether on a PowerPoint slide or something that I say that is a part of the message, that you would take that word, that you would hammer it home into our hearts, that you would bring about the change that only you can do by your word and by your spirit's power. We trust in that, Lord. Put no confidence in the flesh at all. And Father, I pray now that you would give me that, uh, well, the old preachers used to call it that divine unction to proclaim the word as uh, it should be proclaimed. Father, I thank you and praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Nehemiah chapter 5, in case you didn't know, Nehemiah chapter 5. We've been doing a study, if you're new here today, we've been doing a study uh, chapter by chapter, sometimes verse by verse, but most often chapter by chapter, and we've been walking through the book of Ezra and then inserting the book of uh, Esther and then now Nehemiah. And so I need to do, I, I feel like that I need to do this from time to time, and I've been doing it for the last couple of weeks, an opportunity for us to go back and kind of bring ourselves up to this juncture in chapter 5 and what it's all about, Citizen Soldiers, part 3, yes, part 3, uh, and talking about a very specific battle that uh, children of God always face. Let me go back and just review with you for a minute. This is the, this is the kind of thing that helps me put it into perspective, an overview of what the Bible says about man's relationship with God being lost and then recovered. You remember, I hope, if you've studied the Bible at all, that in the beginning God created a good world. And I, by that I mean the cosmos. It was all good. And he put a guy by the name of Adam, actually in Romans, he, he's retitled something a little bit more accurate. First, first Adam... Uh, and he was an innocent, now you need to see this, not perfect, he was an innocent man, and God put him into his world to do one thing and one thing only, to glorify him. But alas, Adam yielded to Satan's temptation, he rebelled against God, he plunged the world into lostness, and, and Satan became the de facto ruler of the world. Now, in case you don't really get that, you have a hard time believing that, go back and review several of the sermons that I've preached the last couple of weeks where I've given you, I've proof-texted that very important truth. So what does God do? He's not through. God calls Abraham, and through Abraham, He calls a people through whom the Savior will come and defeat sin and Satan and abolish death. And in the Old Testament, we find this was the people of Israel. And then in the New Testament, that includes us. One of the uh, books that I've preached through in the 17 years that I've been here is the book of Ephesians. And I, I have preached through that before. Now, I'll have to tell you that the first time I preached through it and then preaching through it here, there were a lot of differences because we, we grow in our understanding. We grow in our living out of the Word of God. But I'll tell you this, one of the, the, the passages that grabbed me was in the very first chapter. And, and I remember, folks, the first time that I really grappled with this and realized what it meant, that God saved me. And, and I was personalizing this. It so overwhelmed me. Look at what it says, and you can apply this. I, I, I hope that it overwhelms you as well. He chose us in him. And look when he did it, he went all the way back to before the garden, before the foundation of the world, 
that we would, and I said it a minute ago about Adam and the nation of Israel, here's our job today to glorify him, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And then he goes on, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. And that is Jesus Christ. And so we look, it's all through Scripture. It's all through Scripture. It was, again, the job of Old Testament Israel. It's our job, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the, the peoples. And one of the ways we do that, now th this is so vital that we get this, part of the, 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 the stream that we are a part of. And, and if you noticed, I hope you did, some of you have been coming in long enough that you've forgotten to look and say, oh, hey, this is what heritage is all about. We are developing people who delight in God and declare his glory. Well, that's not something we just pulled out of the air. This is a, this is a part of the stream of history. All that's going on in the world, and we have the Bible that tells us the stream of God's history that we are a part of. That every day, in every way, you and I, if you're a follower of Christ, you are to delight yourself in the Lord and declare His glory from our neighborhoods to the nations. Now, one of the promises that goes with the delighting yourself in the Lord rather than the multitude of other things that you could delight yourself is, now look at this, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Now, there are some people who take that and say, oh boy, I have a lot of desires in my heart, so I'm going to delight in God so I can get some stuff. Well, you've just missed the point. If you delight in God, what is the desire of your heart? God. And when you delight in God, He will give you that desire. He will give you Himself. I've told this story, and I, I think it's a great story. It's got a couple of stories today about my wife. Okay? Now, you say, oh, Pastor, you're treading on dangerous ground. But I, I go back because this is, this is such a marvelous picture. Uh, not, not that she's perfect. I say that with a smile, okay? But, but she learned this. This is one of her favorite verses in college. So students, uh, l listen, get this. Young people, older people, get this. A and she became a Christian as a sophomore, began to follow the Lord and began to learn about certain things. And, and so she, she learned this verse. And later on, there was a, a conference that she went to where this was hammered on, delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. It was a conference, a lot of you have never heard of this guy, Bill Gothard, the Institute in Basic Life Principles, it's called now, and I, I know he's fallen upon some hard times, but, but anyway, she went and she learned some things about what this exactly means, and one of the things she learned was this, if I delight myself in the Lord, then what that means is I'm going to honor my parents and I'm going to honor my parents and their desire that I marry a believer because her parents were believers at that time. She went to college with that in mind. And so the first year, this, this is her own testimony, the first year she kind of put that, she parked that. Do you ever do that? You don't do that with Scripture, do you? You park it over here and you kind of follow your own desires. She kind of dated indiscriminately. She discovered that was not going to work. So the next year, she said, I'll only date Christians. Guess what? She found out most of the guys that said they were Christians uh, didn't act much different than the guys who weren't professing Christians. And so the last year, here's what she said. She said, I'm just going to give my, my dating life to the Lord. And she took it. She came to the place where she said, you know, Lord, I, I really want to get married, but that's the desire, and I'm going to delight myself in you in, in whatever you want to do is okay with me. Well, I say with all humility, it was shortly after that that she met me. Oh, my. 
Really? I was the best you could do? Well, anyway. See, don't evaluate your life by where you may be on the, pro in, in the, on the journey, okay, in the process. You may be year one. You may be year two or three. Keep delighting yourself in the Lord and declaring his glory to the nations. Give your desire to him, and he will fulfill that desire by giving you himself. And sometimes he will give you those other desires. Well, and that's why one of the, the things that we discovered in Esther, we said it over and over again, and I have so much fun with the, 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 the children in the third and fourth grade of one class because invariably, I'm telling you, every week at least one of them comes up and says, Pastor Marty, how's it going? And I might start talking about stuff, and then all of a sudden it dawns on me, I need to listen to my own preaching. Because they're looking for a particular thing. Everything is going according to plan. And you might be saying, whose plan? Not my plan. Well, if you delight yourself in the Lord, you give your desires to him, then everything is going according to plan. Now, that was just a little aside. So, we, we fast forward from the Old Testament. That's why Israel was there, to glorify God. The Savior is born and the people see the gospel fully revealed, and then the church, then the church was birthed at the day of Pentecost, and it is the fulfillment of all that God started with Abraham. And guess what? The goal of the church is the same, to take the gospel into the nations. I've said it like this the last couple of weeks. Somebody just out of the blue uh, said this. I, I almost remind you, Pastor, are you going to change the name of the church? I said, what? Well, several years ago, or several weeks ago, you said you may want to ch change the name of the church to Church on the Attack. <laughs> that would be more accurate. And from day one, that's the way the church is supposed to be, okay? With the, the world around us, which is set against us, the world system, with Satan as the de facto ruler, you, you know, and they're going to counterattack every time they can. And so that's why the book of Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah are so vitally important because they take a snapshot and they just kind of, they blow the picture up of what we're supposed to be doing. So Zerubbabel goes back, he builds the temple, a symbol of worship. And then later on, Ezra goes back, and then later on, Nehemiah comes back, and he begins to build the wall and the gates and all of those things. Listen to me, you don't want to get too allegorical, but all of those things are a picture of what we need to be doing today. You see, we are God's gate keepers and we are God's wall builders today and that's that's been the the stuff of the last couple of sermons uh, I, I have said because this is a picture they were citizens they were all part of the kingdom they were all citizens but they were all soldiers and we saw a beautiful picture of that last week in uh, the the story of the finishing up the wall in chapter four here, here was the key verse last week you remember it? You're going along, you're building the wall, and all of a sudden the enemies that are around you, we're not building a physical wall, by the way. And we're, uh, by the way, we're also not building walls so that your relationships will fail. We're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about walls which represent God's protection. You, you want to do that for yourself, don't you? For your family, for your wife, for your children, for your grandchildren, for your church. It, it, it symbolizes God's protection, his provision. It symbolizes purity. We are called out. We are called into the family of God to be pure. And it also symbolizes passion. We saw last week that they had a passion for completing the wall. So that's what, that's what we're talking about. And we want to be good wall builders, don't we? Everybody here, you're, you're a covenant child of God. Are you following me? Do you want to be a good wall builder? Okay. Then do it like the pro. Okay? 
Paul, in the verse right before this, he says, as a wise master builder. Now, let let me just share with you. This verse is about church leaders, okay? Paul says, I'm a leader, I'm an apostle, I built the foundation, which is Christ, and other leaders come along and build on this, but it has an obvious application to everyone. Husbands, are you leaders? Yes. Wives, mothers, are you leaders? Yes. People who are church members, are you leaders? Yes. So this obvious application is saying what Paul is saying, choose the right building materials when you're building that wall in your own life, wife, life of your wife and children, grandchildren, again, the concentric circles that goes out. And here's what he says. He, put, he puts two in opposition. And it's not that the second part is sinful. That's not what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, if you're going to build something in your life and in the lives of others, the life of your church, build something eternal that has eternal value, not something that's going to burn up overnight. And so he says, I'll tell you what kind of building materials to use. How about gold? Gold is lasting, hmm? It serves as kind of an overlay. Silver, that's a good one too. But I'll tell you this, the the precious stones, don't think gemstones. Don't think rubies and diamonds and emeralds and things like this. This precious stone had to do with back then building materials like granite and marble. And if you were going to build a building that was going to last and you've ever been to the part of the world like Turkey where they have built these buildings that have lasted for hundreds and even thousands of years, you'll see the ones that, were, that are still there were built with these precious stones. They have staying power. They have lasting value. It's not sinful to use wood or hay or straw. But if that's all you use, that's talking about the, the common stuff, the, the stuff that a thatched roof hut would be built out of, and when the fire comes through, it's going to destroy it. And so build with the right materials. You're, okay, we're talking about building. We're going to get into these three sections of chapter 5, all right? Trying to lay a foundation before we get there. Your effectiveness in building your wall will be only as good as the material with which you build. The Word of God and the things that grow out of the Word of God. And here, here are some questions that you can ask for your daily life. What, what, are you doing? what are you going to do the rest of the day? What are you going to do tomorrow? What are you going to do with those relationships? And that, that's, a, that's a whole subject unto itself, but the real key is asking intentionally, what am I building? Am I building with eternity in mind? you're trying to build a wall for yourself, for your spouse, child, let's say a grandchild, what does that say about your conversations? If you ask yourself the question, am I building with eternity in mind? It means that it may change the direction of the things you talk about, the questions that you ask, so that you build with something that will last, or, or, and I tell you, this convicts me Or am I building on the cheap? I can build with wood in my conversations. I can build with hay. I can build with straw. And it's not sin. It just won't last. And it may not prepare your loved one for eternity. That's what I'm getting out of this whole picture of the building of the walls and the enemies that come and and, and they're real. I came across this. This is out of a book that I think we're going to be using for our men. Uh, 
sometime in the near future. It's entitled, Let the Men Be Men. That's a pretty good title. There is a companion volume for the women. Guess what the title is there? Let the women be women. I thought somebody was going to say submissive, but... That's one of, the, one of the values. But here, here is what this guy was reading through it, and I thought, wow. Oh, Lord, this speaks to me. It speaks to anybody who's a leader. So if you're a leader of your a younger sibling or a leader of your group, of your pack, okay, you teens, listen, you've got a pack. You've got guys that you run with or girls that you run with, okay? Are you, are you helping to, to build into those people? And I, I thought this little paragraph was so powerful. And it talks about rejoicing in the truth and being pure in doctrine. Giving yourself to the Word of God. Just, just listen to these. Again, what I share with you, this is not meant for guilt. This is meant first of all for me, and I'll share something about that in just a minute. When a man rejoices in truth, this could be a woman, anybody. I'm just reading it. When a man rejoices in truth that he likes but rejects biblical truth that he doesn't like, he is not pure in doctrine. When a man mixes human reasoning and his own opinions with Scripture, he is not pure in doctrine. When a man rarely reads, studies, or applies the Word of God, he is not pure in doctrine. When a man thinks spiritual maturity will happen automatically simply because he attends a Bible-teaching church, he is not pure in doctrine. When a man treats public worship, ministry, or sacrificial giving as optional, he is not pure in doctrine. When a man expresses unrighteous anger verbally and refuses to apologize and seek forgiveness... He is not pure in doctrine. When a man said he hates adultery, fornication, and other deadly sins, but watches those same sins in entertainment or pornography, he is not pure in doctrine. When comfort and convenience are the main goals of a man's life, while he rarely puts forward any effort in his relationship with God, he is not pure in doctrine. And you think as a preacher that I've got all this covered and that I'm getting on to you. Last week, it was Sunday afternoon. I, I've, I've labored all week with whether or not to share this. One of the reasons was pride because I thought I'll look weak. Let me give you a little secret. I am weak. <laughs> Jan and I are sitting around and something happened and I snapped at her. In, in the moment I felt justified, it's easy to justify yourself, isn't it? I felt justified. But I thought about it, and I had, I had this ready to read last week about being pure in doctrine, but I didn't. But I had read it, and the Word of God was, was convicting me because I know what I preached last week, building, building, putting another brick into the wall of your wife to protect her. I wasn't building her with bricks of the Word of God. I was throwing rocks. Pure and simple. And I didn't say anything immediately because we had prayer time last week and I had to go to prayer time. <laughs> that hour was agonizing. Because Jonathan had written one of the prayer points that just gutted me. And so my prayer was a prayer of confession and contrition, and I got home and I apologized. And I, one of the things that just I appreciate about my wife is how she's just long-suffering and 
she forgives quickly. You know, just really does. What would have happened if I had let that go? What's the, what's the reason that Jesus said, this is the reason why you get divorces? You're right, CJ. Hardness of heart. And hardness of heart doesn't get there overnight. So, keep short accounts. We, we've got enemies from without. I've got to get through the rest of the sermon. But the, I, I just, I, I needed to share this with you, and we'll, we will, okay? Enemies from without, the, 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 the government, all of the entities outside. Basically, again, remember, Satan is the de facto ruler of the world, and we saw last week we are hard-pressed on every side. So we've got enemies from without as we're on the attack, right? Read the book of Acts. Then we've got enemies from within. Last week we began to look at that, and, and David says this, I, you know, if it was somebody who was my enemy, it was taunting me, I could live with that. But it's not. It's somebody that's a friend. We saw last week how that that's, people can be well-meaning even in church or in, 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 your, in your family. They don't mean to, maybe, maybe, they, maybe it's intentional. I think more often than not, it's like Peter who blundered and said to Jesus, you're not going to do that. You're not going to complete your goal. And he said, get behind me, Satan. We might say to our family members, get behind me, Captain Bringdown. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then we go back. Here's the antidote. Don't be afraid. And in between the don't be afraid and fight, what is it? Remember the Lord. Remember what the Lord has done for you. So, today, here's what we're going to do. Rip and run through the, the, the three points. I'm going to read this text and show you in three movements another problem from people within. Okay? Here we go. Point one, the people's cry for help. Nehemiah 5, 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brothers. This affected everybody in the family. For there were those who said, now watch this, with our sons and daughters we are many. They had big families. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in your power, in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. Here's what was happening. In the building of the wall, there were very, very rich people. See, in those days, there were no middle class, very rich and very poor, probably from outside the wall, and they came in to help build the wall, but they didn't have the opportunity to to do their work. So you have the uber-rich and you have the uber-poor, and this was a legitimate problem. And there are two things you can glean from this, all right? The first thing that the rich believers, the rich Jews, turned a blind eye to the legitimate needs of their brothers and they overlooked them, okay? But there was a further problem we're going to see in the next section more clearly, all right? The next problem was that there were rich believers who were taking advantage of their poor brothers and sisters. Now, a couple of things. I'm, I'm going to give you some stuff, just very, very simple points, but I think these are very important. Why were the poor people poor? We've already said outwardly they had big families and they had to support them, and they weren't working, and so they had to mortgage their, imagine this, a government placing 
bigger and bigger taxes on you. But that's what the king was doing. And so they had to borrow money and mortgage their stuff so that they could pay the taxes. And they were destitute. But ultimately, why are they poor? The world will give you a lot of reasons, but the world will probably never give you this reason. The rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is maker of them all. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. The main reason that they were poor is because of the providence of God. Now, don't do what some Christians do. All right, hey, God did it. So I don't have to do anything to help. No, when there is a cry for help from our brothers and sisters, let's jump to the New Testament and see if we can get some idea of what we are to do as we look around. This is not talking about people outside the church, but in the church. John said, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? James says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, With a flippant, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body. What good is that? Jumping back to Paul, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. This is a general principle, but it focuses on especially those who are of the household of the faith. I'm sharing this as an application. Is it possible for people who have wealth or have means? By the way, how many of you, don't raise hands, are rich in here today? Everybody ought to raise your hand, comparatively. But there are attitudes that, that hinder us from building that wall. Do you remember this? Anybody remember the story of the Good Samaritan? There were basically three groups of people involved in that, and three attitudes. And this is, I believe this little story helps us to see, helps me to see how easily I can turn a blind eye to a brother or sister who's in need. First attitude, the attitude of the robber, the robbers. What was their attitude? What's yours is mine, and I'll take it. Now, nobody in this room has that attitude. But I'll guarantee there are a lot of people around that do. So that's one attitude. And and there are some Christians that, that do take advantage. We'll see that in a minute. Second attitude were the two religious guys. They just walk on by. They skirt around the, the guy that was in the ditch. So the first attitude is what's yours is mine, and I'll take it because I can. I'm powerful enough where I can do that. Second attitude is what's mine is mine, and I'll keep it. Mm. That is a lot more prevalent in my life. But that was not the attitude that Jesus commended. He commended the Samaritan that said, what's mine is yours and I'll give it to you. I, I just think that that is a good antidote for the kind of attitude that turns a blind eye. So, they were being overlooked. There's your answer. But they were also being misused. Now, this story in chapter 5 is also a cry for justice. All right? Are you following me? We're going, to read, we're going to read the whole thing. Verse 6. I love this. Uh, I, I shared a few weeks ago, and if you'll look later on in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a bit of a curmudgeon. You know what a curmudgeon is? It's a cranky old person. You know any curmudgeons? 
Well, somebody does. <laughs> or maybe they're giving a personal testimony. But his anger was different. I believe this was a righteous indignation when he heard their outcry in these words. He said, I took counsel within myself. Nehemiah was a student of the word. So he thought about this. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. All of them that were misusing, not all of them as a group. And I said to them, you are exacting interest. Now watch these things, these charges. You are exacting interest, each from his brother. I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. Those are the exiles. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing, now watch the motivation. The thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? and prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. That's what he was doing. We're going to see this in a minute. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, well, I I love this. They, They were responsive. They could have just said, jump off a cliff. They said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests, made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all of the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So Nehemiah starts with righteous anger, righteous indignation. There is a right way and a wrong way to be angry. Last Sunday, that was a wrong way to be angry. This is right. Not just because the people were suffering, but because the people of God were not living according to God's commands. They weren't obeying God. They weren't living in the fear of God. There was sin in the camp that Nehemiah knew would ultimately destroy the work. And so let me just give you, again, some boom, 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 proof texts of the things that Nehemiah was talking about. We look at other passages, other portions of Scripture, and and here's what he says about justice. Here's what God says about That's what they were calling for, give us justice. And Nehemiah said, yes, you need justice. So Micah says this, he has told you, O man, what is good. It doesn't matter, this is not just for adults, this is for teens, this is for everybody. Here's what's good. Here's what the Lord requires from you, to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your Lord. They were not doing justice and they were not walking in the fear of the Lord. Now, let's define what is justice? I looked it up several different places, a lot of stuff, but justice is the virtue, listen, of giving to everyone what is his due. Compassion sometimes enters in, like in the case of salvation, where if we got justice, what was our due? None of us would make it to heaven. Thank God for compassion. So it's the virtue of giving to everyone what is his due. It is fair dealing. It is impartiality. It is honesty. So that means that what Nehemiah was doing was applying justice. If you have wronged someone, you make it right. That's justice. If you have wronged someone, you are accountable to do what's right. So let me just ask you from that passage we read, had the rich wronged the poor? Certain ones, 
Had they wronged the poor? That is very important to see. How? By simply being rich? That was not and never is a problem. But they were taking advantage. And you heard some of those things about interest. Let me blast you with about three or four different verses that are very important for what we understand Nehemiah was doing. This is very instructive for us today in the church. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Wow. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you better make it just. And back then they had usury that was rampant, 50% sometimes. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. They, they were disobeying the direct command of God. No wonder Nehemiah was, was concerned about them being blessed. Look at this. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. He shall live with you. Take no interest for him from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest. You can lend your money, but not at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I got two more. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells you, you shall not make him a slave as a slave. He shall be to you as a hired servant, as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. And then round it off with Leviticus 25, you shall not wrong one another. You shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. Your God. A couple of things. J just to, to clear up questions. Remember the, what I read just a few moments ago. A man of pure doctrine is not going to mingle the word with all of the other ologies, the ideologies that are out there. Some of the rich had wronged the poor. Was Nehemiah condemning an entire group? No, just those who had wronged the poor, those who were offending. Is it, would you find justice a minute ago, is it justice to require someone to pay for something that he did not take or has not done? Did you follow that? Let me say it again. Is it justice to require someone to pay for something that he did not take or has not done? No, that is not justice. That is injustice. And we find a verse that just cries this out. Ezekiel 18, the soul whose sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Justice is what Nehemiah did. He held a certain group accountable for their wrongs that they had committed. And wonder of wonders... What did they do? They stopped doing what the, the wrong was. They corrected it, and they committed to fearing God and doing things His way. Does that remind you of anybody in the New Testament? A, a, a character. How about Zacchaeus? When he got saved, he got thoroughly converted. That means his wallet got converted. And he just, he's, he's partying with Jesus. They're celebrating. He just loved it that he was saved. And he blurts out, I'm going to give half of my wealth away. Oh, he didn't have to do that. He just did it. And if I have wronged, this is justice. He was recognizing it. If I have wronged someone, I'm going to pay back four times 
what I owe them for that wrong. Wow. That's why Jesus said, this guy is a child of Abraham. Today salvation has come to this house. Last thing. Okay, are you ready? Nehemiah serves, I love this last part, as a Christ-like example of generosity. Verse 14, moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, now watch this, this is incredible. From the 20th, we miss these things, don't we? Casual reading. From the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, what, do the math. How many years is that? Well, you cheated. You looked at the text. Twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. They could have, but they didn't. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on their people and took them from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because, here it is again, because of the fear of the Lord. Watch this. I also persevered in the work on this wall. He kept his hands to the task and acquired no land. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't own any land, but during the 12 years, he didn't get any land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. I guess the reason they had to wait ten days was so they needed to sober up. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. He was so concerned with that. Remember, for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah was incredibly generous. Okay, back up here. 150 men at his table. Every day he served one ox and six sheep. Do you know how many th- that would add up to in 12 years? This was all at his own expense. Now get a picture of this. Nehemiah was incredibly wealthy. He had to be. 4,380 oxen. Where in the world did he get them all? Did he own them? We don't know, but that's all at his own expense. And 26,280 sheep, not including the birds and not including the alcohol. And Nehemiah said, I paid for it out of my riches. He was over the top wealthy and over the top generous. Where did he, how did he get so wealthy? Just like the poor got so poor, the Lord makes poor, the Lord makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Not only had the Lord made Nehemiah wealthy, Nehemiah did what was right with his wealth. Does he remind you of anyone? Like Jesus? Just point Jesus existed in the form of God but did not regard equality with God something to be hung on to. Rich. But he emptied himself and gave. Poured out his life so generously. Don't let the Word of Faith folks grab this verse and misuse it and and milk all of the richness from it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty, you by his poverty, might become rich with true riches that are eternal. All throughout the Old Testament, I think in this last part of Nehemiah, we see a picture of the gospel. 
We are utterly destitute. Jesus is rich beyond comparison, but poured it all out for us. How did he do that? He came to earth and lived as a man, a perfect man, and then died on Calvary's cross so that we could come into a relationship with God the Father. And we could have eternal riches, everlasting riches of salvation. The Bible says today, if you hear His heart, don't harden your hearts. That's the road to to wreck and ruin. If you're here today without Christ, receive the riches of salvation through Him. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, keep on building the wall your own life taking those bricks. Don't throw rocks like I did last week. Confess. Get it right. Move on. And keep on building for the Lord Jesus Christ. Right before Jonathan comes, we're going to pray, and I'm going to pray for somebody very specific in this prayer. Uh, Sam Karui, are you here? Dr. Sam Karui. Where's Dr. Mike? McGee. Is he here today? Okay, he's, he's out of town with his family. And uh, this next Saturday, the 14th, uh, Sam and Dr. Mike are going, Dr. Sam and Dr. Mike are going to the, the Congo, then Uganda, and then Kenya. And this is going to be a, a challenging trip. We want to pray for them before they leave this coming Saturday. If you want to be a part of the, the prayer ministry, they have prepared a prayer guide. They will be available at the welcome desk. So please pick that up, and we will pray for you, Sam, and for a good success on your journey and on your ministry there. And then we will sing a closing song. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that even through stammering lips and, uh, Lord, weakness, that you show yourself strong because of your word, and because of the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that that would be what Sam and Mike go with this, this next week. Uh, they're offering themselves truly, but, but really the only thing they have to offer is Jesus and Him crucified for sins. And I pray that you would go before them, give them safe travel, But even more importantly, Lord, grant them uh, the ability to speak uh, the truth in love and with power. And I pray that people would be strengthened, the church would be strengthened in those countries. People would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, thank you, Lord. Um, And uh, we want to thank you for our moms today, for those who will be celebrating. And as Kicker prayed before, help us. I know uh, I've Last time I had a conversation with my mom was 40 years ago. And so I'll, I'll miss her, but, but thank God that many of us will have our moms to celebrate with. And I pray that we would do so uh, very appropriately as we remember them. But most of all, help us to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.